to the Wild Wisdom Podcast with Dr. Patricia Mills. I'm Dr. Patricia. This podcast is for people who want to transform their health, restore their hormones, and reconnect to their body's natural wisdom. Hi, I'm Dr. Patricia. I'm a Canadian medical doctor, published author, internationally recognized researcher, and passionate advocate for your health. Here, we'll explore the intersection between ancient wisdom and cutting-edge science, distilling the essence of true health into practical steps you can take. Wild wisdom is instinctive knowledge in action. Thanks for making this part of your day. This week... We have a very special guest, Dr. Patricia Mills. Dr. Patricia Mills is a Canadian medical doctor, published author, internationally recognized researcher, and a passionate advocate for women's empowered health transformation. The reason Dr. Mills is so passionate and dedicated is because of a very personal story, which she happens to share with us on on this week's episode. And like how many people come to exploring various aspects, various realms of medicine, it is through being forced to have to look at different areas when Band-Aid solutions are not addressing the root cause of disease. Dr. Patricia Mills is incredible with her level of thoroughness and tenacity. And so she dove deep into the research, went beyond what she was taught in medical school and started to explore other areas of medicine, functional medicine, naturopathic medicine, nutritional sciences, health technology, Ayurvedic medicine, traditional uh, African traditional medicine, and so much more. She read up on biohacking to anthropological texts, uh, studies looking at ancient bones, which we are actually going talk about. So she left no stone unturned. She broke down all the boundaries to discover what she now calls the threads of truth, themes that kept repeating throughout the text, showing up consistently, proven with basic science at the cellular level up to the honor tests of time. She is committed to using the wisdom she's found in the intersection of cutting edge science and ancient wisdom to provide women with the knowledge and support they need to thrive on their health journey. We have an incredible conversation. And in fact, one of her very first passions, and not only passion, has to do with nutrition, functional nutrition. And she brought the idea of talking about the ketogenic diet and the carnivore diet and its potential areas of concern for her, especially with respect to women's health. And so she does an absolutely incredible deep dive on how we need to be very conscious consumers of health information because there's an abundance of information and an abundance of opinions, which aren't always evidence-based. It is really important before you do any kind of strategized functional nutrition plan that you're working with someone who has this level of articulation and knowledge and a really good history and critical appraisal and looking at the research. And that's exactly what you get from this episode today. We do a deep dive of, you know, nutrition in particular for women. We talk about what the ketogenic diet looks like, the clean keto versus dirty keto, the amount of proteins, fast proteins, slow proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. And through all of the information she's compiled, all the research that that she's done, she proposes her own 
reasons for concerns with long-term use of these diets in particular and in particular for women. I know that if you've been attracted to learning about nutrition, if you have been intrigued on whether or not the ketogenic diet or carnivore diet is for you, this is an episode you're really going to want to listen to. Dr. Patricia Mills is a voice that needs to be amplified in this healthcare space. She really cares. She's incredibly passionate of medical wisdom in collaboration in making sure that women are making empowered decisions with respect to their health. And she's always doing it from the perspective of asking why. Why does this happen? What does this mean? And thank goodness she's so tenacious and wanting to know more. We are all benefiting from her deep dives through her wisdom and her insights. So without further ado, I welcome my friend and the brilliant Dr. Patricia Mills, the podcast. Dr. Patricia Mills, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Michelle. It is my absolute pleasure to be speaking with you today. You are a delight. And I'm very grateful that we found each other and um, have had the opportunity to collaborate and, and, and align our mission and vision. I think you are just such an, a, a passionate, um, what is the other word I want to use? Like you're just, you are one of the most passionate, aligned, organized women. Like you just, you just really have an incredible gift. And I think you're going to do wonderful things to serve humanity and, and women in particular. And I think you have an incredible journey to medicine. And so before we get into our incredible topic today, I would love for you to take the opportunity to tell my community who you are, how you got to be this woman with such passion and grace for helping women wanting to create community and, and make a difference. Oh, thank you, Michelle. It's like the best introduction. I just want you to know I feel the same way about you. <laughs> I think that's why we love collaborating together. I really enjoy you. Totally. Oh, likewise. Thank you. Um, so yes, um, I'm a, so I'm Dr. Patricia Mills. I'm a Western trained medical doctor. I did my um, medical undergraduate training um, through University of Toronto in Canada. And then I went to University of British Columbia in Vancouver to specialize uh, in physical medicine and rehabilitation. So, you know, I work with people with brain injury, spinal cord injury, multi-trauma, helping them through their physical and emotional rehabilitation needs. Very complex. And um, I'm also a researcher. So um, I uh, publish research. I conduct research. I publish research. And one of my kind of bread and butter type of publications are what's called systematic reviews. So I have to read a lot of research and understand it and distill the essence of that research so that um, when I write up the results, other people, either medical or non-medical people can understand it. So that was a really wonderful skill set that I developed over time. Um, and then what happened was I was practicing medicine in Vancouver in, in, in the main rehabilitation hospital there. Um, and I got the worst call of my life. Um, my dad called me to tell me he had been diagnosed with ALS. Um, that's Lou Gehrig's disease. 
Um, it's the disease where um, your muscles slowly but surely deteriorate over time and all of your muscles and everyone's affected differently when they get this pretty horrible disease. Um, and for my dad, it was a five-year journey um, where he slowly lost all of his muscle function. And, you know, I, I helped him with the diagnosis. I helped him from the physical medicine rehab perspective. I helped him, you know, get all the equipment that he needed and the support that he needed and the medications when he needed them. And I got to the end of all of that, of what I could do. And I just felt like there was more, you know, I, I said, there must be more. Why, why the question that came up to me at that point in time, and you know, I really like this question is why, <laughs> you know, why do these things happen to us? Why did this Iron Man, avid cyclist, healthy, like quote unquote, healthy guy, like we thought he was eating healthy. He was, um, you know, such, such a positive, he was giving to his community. Like he was doing everything right so to speak, according to what our paradigm of right has been up until very recently, at least in my world. Um, and he got this disease and we didn't have a family history of it. And I started to look around me and I started to notice with my patients that when I applied the question of why, like, why were these patients of mine coming in with multiple sclerosis, autoimmune diseases, um, Parkinson's, right? You know, like there were loved ones having this. And then from and then I started to focus it on myself. You know, as a doctor, I always focused outward on other people. And I started to notice with myself as a woman, right? Um, why was I um, tolerating the fact that I was getting these like hemorrhagic heavy periods? You know, I was, I was suffering premenstrually. Um, when I wrote my, my physical, my um, board of certification exam to become a doctor, the night before I hemorrhaged from my periods and I had such heavy cramps, I couldn't sleep the whole night. So I went into that exam that determined like my future sleep deprived, you know? And I remember like, I just thought that was normal. Can you believe I thought that was like, you know, yeah. normal? Um, and so, you know, I started to look at these events and I said, okay, something's not quite right here. So I started to dive into the research um, and I started to attend, um, conferences on like nutrition. Cause I had some, I had a sense that something maybe nutritionally could be done for my dad, um, at the time. And I, and I'm kind of tenacious. Like when I read something, I go into another thing and another thing, I go down the rabbit hole until I feel like I really understand that topic. And I kind of pop back out again and, and, and chase another kind of topic, as you know. And I just started to, and I started to look into the research that we had not been exposed to in medical school or in my residency training, just by virtue of not having time, right? Like you, you have a certain amount of time. And, and so your teachers will teach you what they know, right? And certain mm -hmm. things trickle in from like new research, not a lot. There's a, there's like a, a known 20 year delay between what's published and what's put into practice, at least yeah. in the medical field. Um, and that is shortening for sure, especially in academic centers where they do a lot of research, but that's generally the case. And I started coming across research in Ayurvedic medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, um, African medicine, you know, they do amazing stuff there. Um, in Asia, they're doing incredible research in Spain, you know, in all these countries, right? And I started just basically going across the boundaries. And my, my only criteria was that it had to be good quality research. Uh, and it had to make physiological sense. Like it had to jive with what I understood about the human body and its physiology. And whenever it didn't, I had to kind of research that. So I started going across these following what I call now these common threads of truth, right? 
And so I started to notice these threads of truth popping up in, in research from all these different disciplines, like even anthropology, where they study the research of bones. Like, you know, there's this whole other area of like looking at the bones of people and understanding from their bones. That's the longest lasting evidence we have of health across time, right? Which will become relevant to our topic today. And, you know, we're not, we, uh, like, I never really was taught that in, in medical school and stuff. So that's how I got to where I am now, where I went beyond my medical training. And I was motivated by this, by a, by a very personal um, experience with disease, which I think often is necessary for medical doctors to go beyond their training, right? Because it's very easy to sit within the comfort of your training. And I think for many people, that's necessary. But for others, when they have a personal illness or a family illness or an illness of loved ones, um, that becomes the motivator. And I noticed like right today, I'm actually doing the module for hormones for the Institute for Functional Medicine. And what I noticed is that almost all of these doctors who came together to create functional medicine as a specialty, they came from different places in the world, different backgrounds, but what they had in common is either themselves or loved ones got, got ill and they were not satisfied with the status quo. Yeah. Well, I think that's what's so inspiring about your story that you go down these channels and you find the nuances and you you have like this inherent wisdom that you bring to the table. You're a wild collective facilitator in Vancouver. And, and I, I'm sure the women of your collective are so grateful to have access to your brain because I think you just have this beautiful fusion and uh, understanding of medicine and going beyond um, your training and really bringing the wisdom globally together so that people can start to really understand what health truly is. And I think, um, we have an opportunity to have someone like you on the podcast to understand that better. I think you have a very deepened level of traditional medicine and, um, ways we can use like even understanding the anthropology of bones to like understand, you know, what, does like an ideal nutrition style look like for women? And I know that's really the direction we're going. Um, you want to talk, and I'm very excited about this topic, especially speaking to someone who's done a deep dive on the research and does systematic reviews and has concerns about, you know, um, very popular trends and diets that you see um, being touted as the way to go for women. And I think it's an opportunity to have someone like you to actually see what the research is actually demonstrating in terms of long-term safety. So I, I know for you, and I'm going to let you go and, and let us know how you got to this um, topic and, and what your concerns are, but I know you want to talk about the long-term use of the ketogenic diet and carnivore diet for women. So what got you so interested in, in wanting to unpack that a little bit better? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, the, I, the way I got into health was through nutrition, and then there were other avenues that opened up to me. But my, my real passion, um, at least like what I feel like I know a lot about at this point in time, and there's lots to know more, is nutrition. And mm -hmm. it started off with like figuring out for my dad what would be optimal for him, and then it translated into what I wanted to be optimal for me as a woman, noticing mm -hmm. the, all the issues I was having. And the thing is, I'm kind of like a person who I like to try everything before I recommend it to people. So I've tried like lots of different things, right? And I did try the, the ketogenic diet and, um, and I noticed like things that worked and didn't work for me. And I went into the research and what first, what I wanted to, um, what I, what I was surprised by is that, 
Well, I'm not surprised by it, but I guess this is kind of a common theme is that nutrition research, especially things like the ketogenic diet, they're not necessarily done on women, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The population in these studies are primarily men, or you're looking at a a population of like people with a condition like epilepsy, right? Or brain tumors or cancer and that kind of thing. But when it comes to giving advice for the average woman, we don't actually have any really um, firm data, right, um, to talk about that. And the other thing is that um, some generalizations that we use that can be very, very um, damaging is a ketogenic diet is really a catch-all term for many, many different ways of eating, right? So like you can have two people on a ketogenic diet and their plates look totally different and their health outcomes will be totally different because the composition of the food on those plates, as you know, can be totally different. So for example, the, the, the terms that you now, we now use to differentiate within the ketogenic diet is a dirty keto versus a clean keto. So for those of you who are listening and maybe you're not familiar with the ketogenic diet, um, what it is, is you're trying to basically, like on a very simplified level, use different fuels, uh, uh, different sources for fuels other than sugar or carbohydrates. Um, so you're trying to use sources like um, protein and fats, right? Um, and especially the fats, fat for fuel. Dr. Mark Hyman wrote a great book on that. And when you think about um, um, sources of um, uh, for different sources you can use for fuel, one of the things about fat for fuel is that the byproduct of it is called a ketone and ketones are thought to be cleaner burning fuel, kind of like the difference between a sugar for fuel and a ketone for fuel is like a, a diesel versus an electric car, right? A diesel will generate a lot of, of like pollution in the body, like that sugar will generate more pollution in the body than using fat for fuel, right? Um, so that's um, one of the considerations of going into a ketogenic diet. The other thing is that there's some hormonal differences that arise when you're, when you're um, minimizing your carbohydrates um, and maximizing your, um, you know, your source of uh, fuel from fat and proteins um, is uh, the impact on your hormones. So within carbohydrates, there's different kinds of carbohydrates, right? There's what I call fast carbs and slow carbs. So a fast carb is something that causes your blood sugar to spike very quickly. And that'll cause your, your sugar hormone insulin to increase very quickly. And that generates a cascade of events in your body where you store a lot of fat. Like that's the signal to your body is to create and store fat, right? Versus a slow carb, which is a slow release of sugar into the body. So that's things like your vegetables, right? Things that are high in natural fiber, like whole foods, pack, uh, carbs packaged in whole foods fiber. That's a slow response of a slow release of sugar into the blood. You don't get as much of a spike in your insulin. And so you're not likely to generate that hormonal signaling of, of uh, storing fat. So when women or men, but we'll talk about women because that's kind of where I'm focusing today, eat a ketogenic diet, what they're, what, if they're um, minimizing their carbohydrates, they're probably also minimizing their fast carbs. So what they can experience over the short term is some weight loss, okay? Because um, when you eat, fat, it doesn't generate that same hormonal response of, of storing fat, which is so counterintuitive, mm. right? Um, the interesting thing is yes. that protein kind of sits in the middle. So there's also, just like there's fast carbs and, and, and slow carbs, there's also what I call fast protein and slow proteins. Um, so refined protein powders, right? 
um, they're kind of like a fast protein in a way. They're very, very refined, very, and they quickly get absorbed by the, by the blood. There isn't anything to really buffer it, like fibers even inside meat. Like there is fiber inside meat. And there's a slow digestive process with um, protein from foods like vegetables and, and meat that they all, uh, vegetables and fruits also have protein, but just different kinds of protein compared to meat. Um, and that'll create a different hormonal response. We know that, for example, there's one type of, um, one thing I need to explain when we're talking about protein, because this will become relevant to why I have a concern with the long-term use of ketogenic diet and um, a carnivore diet in, in humans in general, but particularly in women, is that not all proteins are created equal, okay? So if you think of a protein like, let's say, a bracelet, okay? Every protein is like a different kind of bracelet and every protein is composed of little building blocks that will, let's say you have a pearl, a pearl bracelet or a bracelet made of like precious stones, right? Each bracelet, each protein will have a different combination of precious stones to make it unique from one another. Okay. And the protein in vegetables are different from the protein in um, meat and within each, like even like lamb protein is different from beef protein which is different from like a banana protein in the way that those little precious stones and pearls are put together to create the bracelet. Okay. And so when you eat a protein, um, a protein containing meal, it, it, what the body needs to do is it needs to break down all of that bracelet into its each individual little components. And in medicine, we call that amino acids, right? Like tiny little pieces of amino acids. And those basic foundational building blocks, those precious stones and jewels and pearls or amino acids, we all have that in common across the animal and plant kingdom. So when you break it down to that level and you absorb it, the body doesn't react to it. And, eat, and within the body, each amino acid, each like precious stone has a different effect on our metabolism, on the, on the chemistry of our body. Okay. So as an example, uh, leucine, which is an amino acid, which is very high in um, dairy products, for example, okay, um, but also present in like pea protein. Okay, so like if you have a pea protein powder, for example, that specific amino acid is one of the main triggers for how a cow grows a baby calf into a large cow in a short period of time. It has its own unique hormonal effect. Okay. So um, when you're when you're talking about um, someone who's on a, um, a clean a clean keto versus a dirty keto, one of the differences is that someone on a dirty keto would, for example, say, "Well, I'm minimizing my carbohydrates, so I'm going to eat a lot of protein, right? And I'm going to eat a lot of fat." And you'll see that on social media. You'll see pictures of people with like their McDonald's burger, but it's on um, like it's like got the bacon and the um, you know <laughs> the beef on like a piece of lettuce, right? And that's yeah. technically keto, right? But, but what you're getting then is a huge dose of like, uh, you know, animal protein prepared with, uh, you know, inflammatory oils and, and, you know, not very many proteins from vegetables. Okay. And what a, a clean keto would look like is someone who has a huge, beautiful plate of, of vegetables, right? Um, with a lot of the slow carbs, okay? And the thing is that fiber from vegetables actually gets turned into ketones in the body by the organisms that live within the lining of our gut. We know that to be called the microbiome. So actually fibers from vegetables 
is a wonderful source of clean ketones for the body to burn as fuel. So when you eat a lot of vegetables, right, you actually are still within a ketogenic diet, so to speak, because you're generating ketones. Each person will respond differently to the carbohydrates contained within that fiber, but generally speaking, um, vegetables generate more ketones. Okay. And so, uh, and then you take that person takes like a, a big plate of vegetables and then uh, a small portion of like, let's say salmon or beef or lamb or whatever, uh, or let's say they're vegetarian. So they'll have some, um, you know, like nuts, right. That would be maybe a source of, or some oats, something like that. Right. And, um, they would get their protein from that. So the same title, right. We can say they are both ketogenic diets, but the, the health outcome is totally different. And what I can say is we're going to kind of take within the ketogenic diet, I'm going to um, um, highlight the importance of, uh, I really dislike nutritional labels, like dietary labels. Okay. I, when people say like, how do you eat? I never use a label. I never say, oh, I eat like a cyclical ketogenic diet, which means that you occasionally eat some, you know, more um, carb, carby carbs, right? Um, yep. I, I actually have to explain what I eat because um, the labels simply do not describe, right? But, but so we've explained what ketogenic diet is in terms of what, like the differences, the nuances, and there's even more nuances, but I think that's a really good nuance to be aware of as we talk about this. And then um, there's this like new carnivore diet, right? Paul Saladino is really into this. Um, he's a doctor who's um, really gone deep into that. And some women are starting to explore the carnivore diet, which is primarily getting your um, sources of um, food from the animal kingdom, right? And um, there, and this this kind of conversation was spurred. I always like to start with a case study, so to speak. Is that I had a woman on my private Facebook group for women who asked, like, she's like, "Well, I eat a high protein diet, right?" And I and I and she's like, "Are there any concerns with that?" And I thought to myself, "Yes." There are some concerns with that, um, and uh, what I, what that came up because I came um, I was coming across um, there's an epidemic or a pandemic whatever you want to call it of women having osteoporosis, right? So osteopenia, osteoporosis basically it's when the bones lose the density, right? Their density, the the quality and density of the bones become um, uh, the quality gets down to the point where women. Um, have like um, fractures, you can easily break your bone, right? And the thing with all of these studies, the ketogenic study and the carnivore diet, and high protein diet, is that um, the limitations are that they're not, they're mostly not done on women, right? And they're not long term enough, like in order for you to determine what is the impact of this diet on your bones, you would have to follow these people out for, you know, decades, right? Or you would have to take people with osteoporosis and osteopenia and look back in their history and do like a questionnaire, like, how did you eat? Right. And it's very hard to like determine people forget and people tend to like think they eat really well. And then when you actually get into it, they like, you know, two days a week, they eat terribly. And, and, you know, two out of seven days a week, maybe that doesn't matter. Maybe it does. Right. In terms of your health. So what I had to do is I had to go deep into the research um, on human physiology and the study of bones through anthropology. And I had to merge the information from these two realms. Okay. To, to, uh, to provide like what I currently believe to be a good reason why women 
and humans in general should not be on long-term ketogenic diets or carnivore diets if, if they, if they don't need to, like, obviously if you have epilepsy, right. But there's even a way within the ketogenic diet to avoid the potential pitfall of develop, developing a problem like osteoporosis. Because my concern with people who are on these long-term diets is if they're not doing it right, okay, if they're not aware of these crucial items that we're going to discuss in, in the next few minutes, is that I, I do believe that they've placed themselves at high risk for developing osteoporosis and other conditions like type 2 diabetes, um, problems with their muscle metabolism, and hypercortisol states, which is um, not a state you want to be in. It's a state of inflammation. It's like a low burning fire in your body. And isn't it, wouldn't it be a shame if you're an individual who is trying so hard to eat healthy, right? You think you're doing all the right things, just like my dad thought he was doing all the right things. And despite all that effort, despite that good intentions, you find yourself with a, a health condition in the long term and you're like, and you're asking yourself, why? <laughs> Why did this happen? You know, here I am trying so hard. Um, so before I get into that um, data that, that supports my kind of hypothesis, because it's a hypothesis, I don't know for sure, right? I haven't done the research on this, but I have some pretty good evidence to suggest why we should probably be cautious with these. But did you have any questions for Michelle? I just spoke a lot there. <laughs> I'm so grateful to have you on. I think this is such a wonderful opportunity is, you know, keto in particular carnivore is gaining massive traction is that there are these fancy labels. We get easily hooked by the promising information. And yet there isn't um, many people talking about the long-term effects and there isn't the research for to demonstrate how this works for women. And so I think this is an amazing opportunity and I'm sure we're going to have you back to talk about many topics because I think it's, I think it's such a unique asset to have someone who understands the research so well and has done the deep dives for us to add a high level conversation is, does this make sense? Because to your point, people are very well-intentioned family member asking why and wanting to be very informed and empowered. So that beautiful way of taking really complex comp uh, concepts and making them very digestible for everybody. So um, just please keep going. And oh, thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much. Um, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so where I want to go next is, um, so we're kind of, it's going to seemingly go a little bit off topic, but it all comes together. I promise. <laughs> So, um, where I was looking at was, I was looking at the study of bones first. I was looking at anthropology and I was looking at, um, very interesting studies where they, um, uh, were looking at like grave sites of people in Europe way back, like about 11,000 years ago. And that's when we shifted from agriculture, uh, from hunter and gathering to agriculture. And there's this unique period of time when these, these same, um, genetic, um, like same, um, tribes, so to speak, like from the same background, same genetics, they were living the same place, like in Europe, this very specific area in Europe. And for some reason, we don't know why, what, uh, like some of these part of this community decided to go into agriculture and the other community continued to do hunting and gathering. Okay. And what was really cool is that they looked at these burial sites and they compared the bones and they saw that the hunter and gatherers had these beautiful, big, strong large bones, like right? no evidence of osteoporosis, no fractures, even in those who were living longer, 
right? Uh, like adjusting for age, so to speak, according to the way that they analyze those bones. They had really beautiful bones. And these people did not, um, according to um, what anthropo- like the, the, merger, the merging of anthropology and nutrition, these people were not drinking a lot of milk, uh, dairy products at the time because they didn't domesticate. They would occasionally maybe get some access to it, perhaps, but they didn't domesticate their animals. Um, so they didn't have access. Actually, humans are the only mammals in the animal kingdom who drink um, the milk, uh, like breast milk beyond a weaning age, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And also the milk of other species, right? And the, the protein in, in other species milk is different than the protein in, in human milk. Okay, so that's just another aside, which we can talk about some other time. But then when they went into agriculture, what they noticed is that within one generation of being agricultures, they started to have brittle and skinny bones, okay? The, the children were born smaller, their bones were brittle. And then they, they studied it over time and they saw that at, when they did uh, eventually domesticate the animals and start drinking their, um, their milk and creating products from the milk, the bones got better but they didn't get as good as they were during the hunter-gatherer age. And when you look at the composition of um, wild greens, um, they actually have really high calcium, right? So like nuts and, and seeds and, and wild um, vegetables have very high calcium content, which is surprising. Uh, and that's why they, they think that's where they were getting their calcium from, okay? Um, and th- so they were eating a lot, of wild, a lot of wild vegetables, hunting, gathering nuts and seeds, and with the occasional meat, right? Like you had to really work for your meat, right? For, your, for that kind of thing. Um, and then you have the agriculture where they, they had like usual single crops, lots of cereal grains, okay, lots of dairy, and their bones were not as good as their counterparts, okay, in terms of hunter-gatherers. And then you look at, um, um, and when people talk about the carnivore diet, they talk a lot about like the Inuits, right, like looking at, the, you know, they eat a lot of, uh, you know, animal products. Well, interestingly, looking at their bones, they do not have the best bones either, okay? So, like, you know... Um, that's very interesting to me. I was like, okay, well, they, you know, they look very healthy. They're well, the you know, the traditional um, Inuit culture when they haven't been, um, you know, using the Westernized diet, um, you know, they're they have very good health outcomes, so to speak, um, and that's often cited as like a reason why something like the carnivore diet would be okay. Is looking at those populations, but if you look at their bones, their bones are also not the healthiest compared to uh, hunter gatherers who have a full range. Of options, including um, vegetables and and that kind of thing, and fruits and whatever, what have you. Okay, so then you look at okay, well, why is that? Um, I came across this very interesting article that talked about the bone buffering effect for the acid-base balance in the body. So when we talk about um, like in medical school, we talk about how the body, uh, the blood, our blood has to maintain a very specific range of it, of like acid-base balance. So you don't want it too acidy, and you don't want it too alkali. Um, you want it just within the perfect range, right? So the body works really hard to maintain the blood in a certain state of not being too acid, generally speaking, okay? And it's a very narrow range. And so um, we, when I was in medical school, we were taught, for example, that what you ate didn't really impact because the body would re- work really hard to um, neutralize that and get rid of it through the lungs and through the kidneys, okay? So you pee it out or you breathe it out. Well, recent research, like from like 2000 uh, onwards, using new techniques, analyze, like they can use different ways to analyze um, the acid-base balance of the body. What in basically as a summary is that the body in healthy subjects, like in healthy people, if you eat things that generate acid and um, the way we know it generates acid is called the potential renal acid load. It's the potential 
um, to um, create acid within the body base um, and the body needs to be able to excrete that so they can actually calculate that now for every food okay um, and when you're eating foods that that generate a lot of acid production in the body one of the ways that the body balances that out in the in uh, is to pull minerals from the bones okay so if you're eating a diet that's high in like um, foods that create acid in the body, what we now know is that the body will pull minerals. And what minerals does it pull? It pulls the balancing minerals to acid, which is calcium um, and magnesium and potassium, things like that. Okay? And calcium is the one that we really understand. Magnesium, obviously, is very important as well. So you can actually generate um, a state of what's called low, uh, low grade metabolic acidosis. You can be a totally healthy individual, okay, with no health conditions, but eating a, 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 a diet that contains food that generate a lot of acids in the body. And you can actually within that neural range, which is 7.35 to 7.45 pH. If you're lower, if you're closer to the 7.35, so you're still within normal, but you're on the more acidic end of that range, you are in a state of low-grade metabolic acidosis. And it's been proven that that state, if you were to continue in that state for a prolonged period of time, what happens? Your bones, uh, your body will pull minerals from your bones to balance that out. So that could lead to osteoporosis uh, in the future, right? If that were to keep happening. You, can, you have a state of high cortisol. Cortisol is your stress hormone. It's your inflammation hormone, right? So you, you end up what's called hypercortisol state, okay? And those two things contribute to, your, um, to things like type 2 diabetes, okay? And even over time, the muscle starts to dysfunction and you lose muscle mass. So you could be eating a lot of... Um, and, and so then that begs the question, what creates acid in the body? Well, the way that they calculate acid production in the body is they look at the kind of building blocks to your protein. So what kind of protein are you eating? And the protein that creates the most acid is the protein that comes from meat and uh, fish and cheese. Okay. And the protein that generates the least amount of acid and actually in some cases does uh, that generates the opposite of acid, which is the alkali, which balances out acid is in general fruit and vegetables. Okay. And cereals, whole grains live more on the acid side. Okay. And that's why it's super interesting when people say, well, um, lemons are acidic, you know, and say, well, actually lemons have an, a base producing body. Like it, they don't generate acid within the body, which is why lemons are considered to be good, right? You're drinking your lemon water there. I can see. So that's wonderful. <laughs> So you're like counteracting any uh, acidity in the body when you're drinking lemons and surprisingly things like coffee and wine don't create acid in the body. When you look at it from that perspective, there's other potential issues with those foods, but from an acid based yes. balance, right? That's not something we're worried about. So, okay. So let's look at our plate. Now we're sitting down to our ketogenic diet or a carnivore diet or whatever diet it is like, um, let's even say a vegetarian diet. Okay. And if you look at your plate and you have a lot of uh, whole grains or you have a lot of animal meat or you have a lot of dairy, you have a lot of fish, right? And that's the majority of your meal. So a, a vegetarian or a vegan could, if they're eating a certain way, have a very, very high acid load plate if they were to eat like a lot of whole grains, like cereal, right, as an example, okay? Mm -hmm. And they were to put like cheese, like if you're um, lac a lacto-vegetarian, you put your cheese in there right? 
And then you have a little bit of vegetables, maybe like you're making a pasta and you have like a little bit of tomato sauce or something like that, right? So that could still be a very high acid forming meal, okay? Um, and then you have your ketogenic dirty keto, right? With the meat and the bacon and the cheese, right? And that's an extremely high acid forming meal, right? Compared to your clean keto where, um, and I like to use like the best, I don't like nutritional labels, but I would say the best nutritional label I've ever um, come across is the one by Mark Hyman, the Pegan diet, where it is yes. um, a lot, right? It's a lot of vegetables and meat is like a condiment. So it's like a small amount of meat, maybe the size of your palm, right? Um, and, uh, you know, not having a lot of cheese because that's very acid forming. We have a lot and, and interestingly, fats like olive oil is neutral. There's no acid forming. So you have lots of really healthy fats, lots of vegetables, which have fiber, which form your healthy ketones, which balance the acid in your body. And those vegetables balance the acidity from the meats because the meats, um, and not to say you need to eat meat in order to get to, to be healthy. However, there are uh, people who eat meat and do it for health reasons. Um, you know, you balance the acidity of the meat for, um, meat, fish, you know, that kind of thing with the vegetables. You see what I'm saying? So my concern is that when women's here, like we have, we should have a high protein diet. Uh, we should um, be eating ketogenic or cyclical keto or vegan or vegetarianism. When what matters is when you sit down and you look at your plate and you visually look at your plate. Okay, um, there's many different things you should consider, right? Like being colorful, because then you get the, the the power of the polyphenols, and those are really helpful nutrients um, for our bodies. But from an acid-based perspective, from a prevention of osteoporosis, from a prevention of hypercortisol, from a prevention of low-grade inflammation, which causes um, you know, type 2 diabetes in the long term, um, and um, Alzheimer's, which is now called type 3 diabetes, right? One category of Alzheimer's. What you want to see is you want to see um, a, a plate of food that is not going to um, create a lot of acid in your body, which your body then needs to counteract mm -hmm. by um, pulling out minerals from the bones so that you, um, don't die. I mean, if, if your body didn't have the capacity to do that, you would quickly die because then your blood would become too acidic and you would pass away. So you need to, your body has this beautiful innate intelligence and, and wisdom. It's actually quite amazing that our body can do this, right? Yeah. Um, but I can tell you, like I, I have come across, um, people from all nutritional labels presenting with osteoporosis. And when I start to ask them, what is actually on your plate, right? Oh, I'm vegan. Okay. Well, tell me exactly what that means to you. Like this, and we, right. Can you tell me what do you eat? You know, and, and how do you prepare it? Like for example, um, um, food additives, like in processed foods, packaged foods, frozen foods, they have a lot of phosphorus added to them, even, um, industrialized teas. Okay. They have phosphorus added to them, and phosphorus is one of the reasons that foods are, um, produce acid in the body, okay, which is one of the reasons why meat-containing foods are more acid-forming. So you could have someone who is very, very, um, quote-unquote, healthy, but they're eating a lot of um, packaged foods or processed foods or you know, having maybe their industrialized tea every day, um, which has a food additive added to it, right? Anything with food additives, okay? will contribute to that acid formation in the body. So to go back to what my dad was going through, just as an example, he was eating a lot of texturized soy protein, like, you know, those soy, uh, ground soy, 
Okay. So he was eating a lot of ground soy. Um, he was having, um, a lot of like, um, these healthy processed foods, you know, when you go into the stores and you, and that label is like organic, healthy choice, all that kind of stuff. Right. But it wasn't, um, when you actually read, read the labels, I invite everybody to start reading the labels of anything that is packaged or barcoded. It has a lot of food additives and those food additives create a lot of chemistry imbalances within our body. They, they do affect the chemistry in our body. If you think you're putting in a packaged food into your body and all that matters is the amount of protein, fat, carbs, and calorie content, you are not on the journey towards true health. You are kind of stuck on a side road um, and you may find yourself going towards um, um, experiencing disease in a way that surprises you because you think you've been doing all the right things. You've been reading the labels saying, this is healthy. This is organic. Um, this is a healthy choice. And I, my concern is that people who are, um, following these like dietary cultures and dietary fads and the advertisement on these packaged foods, it's a huge disservice to themselves and to their bodies that they're not even aware of. So all I want to do today is raise awareness around the um the, the what's happening on a chemical level within the body that correlates right to what we have it explains what we have seen in the study of bones okay and there's so much more to this but this is what i wanted to focus on today because um mm -hmm. for example i'm gonna have um like i have a group of uh, women that um, follow me on facebook in my private group and um, i'm gonna direct them to this podcast because when my when my listener um when she said, why should I not eat um, a high protein diet? It's not something you can explain in a few minutes, right? As you can <laughs> see, it's something that requires, um, you have to be thoughtful around the answer because I also don't want to um, contribute to any misinformation. And that's the thing. I feel like a lot of people hear something and then they just say it over and over and over again. And all of a sudden it becomes a part of like, um, our knowledge base, but it actually wasn't founded in anything quite scientific. So I want to really um, limit myself to the science that I found. And it's extremely convincing. You would have to go into the nephrology research. So I found this research in nephrology journals. So that's a study of the kidneys, because that's where other than through our breath, that's where a lot of our acid base balance happens. And it's the, and it's these researchers who were studying the kidneys who said, you know what? The kidneys are not the ones that are balancing um, our acid-base status when we're healthy. They do come into play in extreme states of like chronic kidney disease. You start to see issues with that. And to the point where if someone has a chronic kidney disease and, and their kidneys aren't functioning, doctors will treat them with sodium bicarbonate. They'll give them sodium bicarbonate to balance out the acid in the body, right? Um, and these individuals have really big problems with osteoporosis, like with, with like, you know, very brittle bones. We know that. So, um, we need to look at healthy states and the extremes of disease states and put it all together into something that makes sense. And what I do know is that the in healthy individuals, the body will use, uh, minerals from the bones, will pull the minerals from the bones. So you could be drinking all the dairy products. You could eat, be eating the cheese. You could be doing all of those things and you could be heading down towards a, ro a road of something like osteoporosis um, and all of those other things that I mentioned before. So I just wanted to explain the why behind that. <laughs> I loved every minute of it. I thought that was incredibly insightful. And 
I think it allows the opportunity for us to have our own critical appraisal of, you know, does this align? Does this make sense? I think for a lot of us who work with women, we see incredibly high rates of osteopenia, osteoporosis. And so we really need to start looking at, you know, um, what they're feeding themselves. Like I, I find this so fascinating from, and it makes so much sense. And I understand like why you went that direction. And I think it creates a lot of clarity in terms of if we're doing something, what are the long-term impacts of that? And I think that the conversation doesn't typically go there where a lot of women are getting their information. It's like the quick, easy solution to whatever. And without much consideration of what those, what the long-term impacts are. I have two questions for you. The one is, the first one is, could you, do you have a, a range? Like, what would you consider a high protein diet for that woman who asked you that is, is there a certain number you put to it or is it completely individualized for you? Yeah, I, that's a great question. Um, I mean, what I understand is that there's extremes. Okay. So there's, there's for everybody, there's like a, a number, which is like probably too low and a number, which is probably too high. And then within that, there's a huge variability for each individual. Okay. And you also have to remember, we're talking about the source of the protein. So the, um, you know, the bracelet protein with its own unique um, amino acids or those precious stones from vegetables, for example, like let's take oats as an example, okay? Oats is very, very high in protein with its own unique oat protein, okay? Um, compared to, let's say, broccoli, which has its own unique broccoli protein, okay? And when you eat a certain amount of um, broccoli protein, you get the, you get the benefits of the protein and, but the, the little tiny, um, precious stones, the amino acids of it do not create an acid imbalance in the body. So now you're filling up your protein quotient of the day with a type of protein that does not increase your acid base balance. Okay. And so the question is, do, does, does that then impact the um, amount of protein that you need? Right. Cause when people say, oh, you need 1.24, um, grams mm-hmm. of protein per kilogram, you know, the range is like 0.8 to 1.24. Um, what we're again, like it's, you're using protein, but there's so many different kinds of protein and each protein has so many effects within the body, right? It, it, they trigger hormones differently. They trigger acid base balances differently. They trigger satiety. Like you're feeling a fullness differently. So I don't think we actually know like the exact amount of protein that you definitely cannot tell the person sitting in front of you how much protein they need. Like you, there's currently no way to actually determine that. So what I do is um, looking at the general kind of like the hunter gatherers, they had beautiful bones, right? Like remember thinking back to the 10,000 years ago, what did they do? They, they moved around a lot, right? They ate a lot of fiber. They ate a lot of vegetables. Uh, they ate a lot of wild plants. They eat fruit seasonally. They eat locally and they hunted and they killed their meat and they prepared and they eat a small amount of that. So I, I do tend to tell women to go towards a, a pegan style diet, the one with the meat as a condiment, right? With a lot of healthy vegetables, a lot of healthy fats. Um, like in Mediterranean diet, they eat eight tablespoons of olive oil a day, right? Like, I mean, much more than you think is like, you know, just a little drizzle of olive oil on your salad is not going to cut it, right? It's going to probably be, need to be a bit more. Um, and then I individualize it according to their health issues, right? So, um, and again, remember, if you eat a lot of acid-forming protein over the long term, you actually lose muscle mass. It's called sarcopenia. 
because you, you establish like a, a, the metabolic acidosis, that low-grade um, acidity in the body causes inflammation, which actually causes sarcopenia. So you could have someone who looks like they need more protein, but actually the problem is that they've been having the wrong kind of protein, right? So I don't think it's as simplistic to say you need to hit this target of protein. I think yeah. it's much more beneficial to say you need a balanced whole foods diet, minimize or eliminate processed foods, right? Pay attention to the um, amount of vegetables to protein ratio to animal protein ratio, right? And if you are eating vegetarian and vegan, you have to be very, very conscientious, right? Of where are you getting your nutrients and your minerals and all those other things from, um, and your and your protein status. And so, basically, it requires a very, very individualized, tailored approach. And if you're not in good health, that's an obvious call for action to work with a medical professional. However, I would say it's worth at least one point in time in your life, even if you are in what you feel to be excellent health and eating and doing all the right things, I think it is worth connecting with a health professional who is in alignment with your vision and your kind of, um, you know, your perspective and have them do like an overview of what you're doing, how you're living and what you're eating and some baseline measurements if that's useful to you. Again, I, I, you know, the, 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 the chemistry happens in the tissues, not the blood. I have very low faith in blood work for many issues. It tells you, it tells you blood is like the highway, but that transporting things, but the actual work happens in the warehouses, right? In the storage, in the factories, and the factories are like your tissues. And we have very minimal studies that look actually what's happening at the level of the tissues. So again, I think it's more of looking at your lifestyle and being open to the, to, um, um, like some women uh, are so fixated on the fact that they're healthy that they're not open to the input that perhaps their diet could be optimized or their lifestyle could be optimized. So staying open to change, staying curious, right? Oh. Learning, you know, I think that's so important because in the end, we don't want to just live our life saying, I, I, I did a healthy lifestyle. You actually want to be healthy, right? That's the purpose of it all, right? You want the outcomes. It's the, it's the end result and the day-to-day experience of health that you want. Well, and I think that's such an empowering opportunity is, you know, we talk to women all the time about like, what's on your plate is that potential opportunity to curate health or to cause inflammation and potential harm down the road. Right. So it's this, it's, I love that you bring that up. Yes. If you were, you know, facing something right now, it's the great opportunity. It's usually a huge impetus for change as often you see, even in, you know, um, medical doctors who then move into that functional medicine space is there usually is some sort of moment that forces them to look beyond. Um, but really this whole conversation is about trying to inspire individuals to take action before that moment, before like asking a different why, like coming to the office and saying like, what are the preventative strategies? How can I put food on my plate to curate health? I just, and what tests are available to analyze and assess that before we have a concern. And so I like that you bring the conversation to that point, because I think that is, that is why we have um, group-based programming to have these conversations. This is why we have you know, uh, practitioners working in this preventative space, having these higher level conversations to curate health and um, really get to the the why we need to understand what's on our plate and what are the impacts of that. So I, 
so value you and I hope you'll come back because I think we could do a really cool segment with you (laughs) (laughs) because you just have this beautiful brain. And I think it's such an asset to have someone who does critical appraisal, understands the research and really looks at the longevity and impacts of that. And I think you answered one of my questions very well in terms of, I, I know that there's no dietary label you ever want to assign to. And I, I agree with that completely, but more that pagan style is, you know, um, in alignment with what you think curates health with what's on your plate with respect to what's on your plate. That's right. That's right. I love that. I have some rapid fire questions for you. Are are you ready? I'm ready. Bring it on. (laughs) (laughs) What books are currently on your nightstand? Oh, um, a return to love. Oh, right. Mm, So good. So good. So good. So good. Um, that's the one I'm working on right now. I also really, um, love, um, things like, um, I I read all of Mark Hyman's books and I reread them, but a return to love right now is my favorite. Love it. What is one thing that brings you joy? Oh, my family, like my, my children being with them, being able to be in the moment with them. That brings me joy. Who do you admire most? Um, who do I admire most? Oh my goodness. I have to say, I, I really, really admire my dad. I mean, he passed away, um, but witnessing his journey, um, his spirit shone so brightly as his body deteriorated. And to, um, you know, he constantly inspires me every day. I think of him at least in some way. Um, so I really, really, I mean, there's many people I, I admire and respect and he is very high up. That. fill in the blank community is oh community is medicine mm. it's soul it's it's the what nourishes us deeply inside advice you wish someone gave you five years ago oh to, oh that's a very good one i wish i had known that um food is an important but not the only important thing i mean i'm really into nutrition and I'm grateful for nutrition because it got me into this space. However, as I got into the health space, I realized what's most important is whole health. And it's more of like a three-legged stool where it's the body, it's the mindset, and it's the spirit. You can call it spirit energetics, like creative forces, God, whatever you want to call it. But if, if one of those three is not in alignment, you know, you don't have whole health. You, you might have the perfect looking body, but you're not going to be happy. And that's what we all really want is to be happy and to love. So that's what I wish I had known five years ago. I love that answer. And I, I completely wholeheartedly agree with you. I think that's, that's a brilliant answer. The best word to describe you. Energetic. <laughs> <laughs> Tenacious. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> lots of good, good, powerful words. Yeah. Well. I, I'm very grateful for you. I'm, I'm grateful that I know who you are. I just, I really, truly enjoy you. Last show, if you even watch TV that you binged in love. Oh, um, oh my gosh. You know, it's been so long. I would say, <laughs> I really like the Game of Thrones, but I still have yeah. not watched the last episode because I heard, I heard it was so disappointing. I couldn't bring myself to watch it. So I'd have to say the Game of Thrones, excluding yeah. the last. Don't watch it. Don't watch it. It took me a very long time to get through that. I was disappointed too. Um, Okay. Patricia, it's such a joy to have you here. I hope you'll join us again. For women who want to connect with you, I I do believe you have a Facebook page, perhaps public page where they could connect with you. 
your wild collective, your website, like how can women find you? What's the best way for them to find you? Thank you. I think the very best way at this point in time is to is to search for me on Facebook, uh, Wild Wisdom for Women with uh, Dr. Patricia Mills, MD. If you put Wild Wisdom for Women, you will find it. Um, uh, and on my Instagram at Dr. Uh, uh, at Dr. Patricia Mills, P A T R I C I A Mills. Um, on my link in bio, I do have a link to my Wild Collective, which I'm I love. I love that you. Um, brought this into being and I, my uh, I find such joy providing these sessions for women like I cry at the end of every time it ends it's like so beautiful um, so yeah I have Facebook and my uh, Instagram would be the two places to um, most easily connect with me at this point in time and you can direct message me through those two platforms at any point in time well ladies you've heard her beautiful brain so please go follow her join her wild collective and be just swept away by her passion, tenacity, and wisdom. So thank you very much for coming on. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely have you back. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast, Wild Wisdom with Dr. Patricia Mills. If you like this podcast, please take the time to like and subscribe. And please feel free to leave any comments and look below for the contact information if you want to connect with me directly. Thank you. And I hope you have a wonderful day, evening or night. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not a substitute for a professional care doctor or other qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided with the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for help in your journey, it is important that you seek out a qualified health practitioner. If you would like to work with Dr. Patricia for her expert health transformation guidance, please email her at info at drpatriciamills.com to book a discovery call. You can also find Dr. Patricia on Instagram at Dr. Patricia Mills and Facebook at Wild Wisdom for Women with Dr. Patricia Mills, MD. For access to all of Dr. Patricia's educational videos and more amazing perks, consider becoming a Patreon member. Links are in the description of this episode. It is important to have an expert in your corner that can help you make the changes you crave, especially when it comes to your health.